Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. We'll be reading the first five verses. Paul's epistle to the Romans. This is God's word as well as Paul's word. Um, Because God superintended what Paul wrote, and God is perfect, his word is perfect. There are no errors in the original language in which it was given and written, that is uh, Greek. And we do have the promise in Scripture that faithful... uh, Translations of the original languages remain to us the authoritative word of God. So listen reverently and, and carefully as I read to you, starting in chapter 9, verse 1. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Oh Lord, we we lack wisdom. I lack wisdom. All of us lack the wisdom that we need more of. We thank you that by your grace we have a modicum of wisdom already. Um, You have taught us, you have instructed us from your word. But we need and want much more. Your word is the source of that wisdom. We ask that as we ponder Paul's words and your words here in Romans 9, that we might grow wiser thereby. That we might grow closer to you in our hearts, which is to be more wise. And please use this passage and its preaching toward that end, that you might receive or that greater glory might be reflected in our lives toward you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, this might sound like kind of a foolish question that I'm going to ask you, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you love your dad and your mom 
Just nod your head if you do. It's good. Very good. It's a good thing. You love your brothers and sisters, right? Yeah. I know sometimes they get a little irritating, but, but they, you love them still, right? You love your grandparents. Probably your aunts and uncles if you have them. You love these people, right? We love our families. Do you want all of those whom you love in your family to go to heaven? Rather than go to hell? I, I hope so. I'm sure. We, those people we love, we want to be blessed, right, by God. And heaven is the place of uh, indescribable blessing that all Christians are going to. So you undoubtedly want all of your family to be in heaven. As do I. Well, let me ask you this. How would you feel if you knew that one or even more than one of your family members was not a Christian and was not going to become a Christian and therefore would go to hell. You wouldn't like that, would you? It's not a pleasant thought at all. It's a painful thought. And so we want our loved ones, our family, to be in heaven with us, our family members. And we should pray for those in our families who don't yet, that we know, do not yet know the Lord, or we're not sure if they know the Lord Jesus, and pray that they would come to know Jesus and tell them about Jesus, perhaps. You children can do that and should do that, just like we adults should. But I bring this up because the Apostle Paul had a family that he loved dearly as well. Not, And he loved his immediate family, I'm sure, although we don't uh, know much about his immediate family, his parents, uh, perhaps siblings that he might have had. But he didn't just love his immediate family, which is undoubtedly true, but he also loved his extended family. You know how sometimes children will say that we, those of us who are Christians and in this church, are really a family? It's true. We are part of a spiritual family. Well, Paul had a family that was, in some sense, a very large, large family, and that was his Jewish family, the Jewish people, Israelites. They were called in the Old Testament, and They were called Jews uh, later on and in the New Testament age. And that was Paul's kind of very large extended family is how we might describe it. But you know what? Most Jewish people in Paul's day, it's quite clear, did not know God, did not know Jesus as their only hope. And therefore, most of the Jews, Paul's... Um, physical family, if you will, were on the road to hell. We're on the road to experiencing God's judgment rather than God's love for eternity. And Paul, kids, was greatly troubled by this. Just like you would be troubled if you knew one of your loved ones might go to hell, Paul was greatly troubled because members of his extended family, the Jewish people, were, had not believed in Jesus. And we're going to talk about Paul's grief over the state 
of his um, physical family or biological family, the Jewish people. We're going to look first, and uh, I'm going to do this kind of in a little bit in reverse order from the way it's presented in the uh, in the text. Uh, but first, we're going to look at the reasons for Paul's grief over the unbelief of most of Israel, most of the Jews. And then we're going to look at, as the text does, at the intensity of Paul's grief over the unbelief of the majority of Israel or of the Jewish people. So first the reasons for his grief and then the intensity of that grief. So reasons. They're found in verses 4 and 5. And the reason is because essentially, or reasons are because of the central role that the Israelites of old, the Jewish people, had played in the history of God's revelation to mankind and especially in redemptive history. God's a plan to redeem lost sinners and make them his children. The Jews played an absolutely central role in redemption and revelation, in other words. So Paul explains that in verses 4 and 5. He's speaking of them and the privileges that they enjoy, the central role they played in redemptive history and in revelation, revelational history. And he says, he speaks of them, he describes them there in verse 4 as Israelites first. That's the first thing he says about them. Israelites uh, was the Old Testament designation of all the physical descendants, not of Abraham or of Isaac, but of Jacob. All the physical descendants of Jacob, the patriarch, were described as Israelites. Jacob, of course, God renamed later in his life as Israel. And therefore, all of his descendants are Israelites. Descendants of the patriarch Jacob. He was the man from whose loins all twelve tribes of Israel sprang, and with whom they were, that is, his descendants were covenantally identified, along with Isaac and um, Abraham also, but particularly with Jacob. Why were his descendants hundreds and hundreds of years and even more than a thousand years later, why were they covenantally identified with him? Well, because the covenant that God made with Jacob was also made with his descendants. We read that in um, Genesis. Now, and I won't take the time to turn to the passage, but you all know the passage that I'm referring to. And Jacob, when God made that covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he was making that covenant with Jacob and his descendants. Now, ultimately, that covenant, internally, I'll say, vitally, that covenant was made only with Jacob's spiritual descendants. But externally and outwardly, And legally, that covenant was also made with Jacob's biological descendants. So this is where we get the distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church is the outward what you see, and the invisible church are those who are in their hearts 
uh, united to Jesus by faith actually versus those who are in the visible church but who aren't converted, but profess to be followers of Jesus. And so all of Jacob's biological descendants were legally, externally, outwardly in covenant with God and were part of the covenant community of old, of the Old Testament period, the latter Old Testament period after the Exodus. And as Jacob's physical, biological descendants, the Israelites, I'm going to call them the Jews and Israelites and interchange those terms, they were to play and did in fact play a central role in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption and revelation. But his plan of redemption in particular as set forth in the covenant of grace which was initially proclaimed in the garden in Genesis 3.15 and was unfolded progressively in successive covenant administrations until it finally reached the new covenant, the final expression of the covenant of grace. So Paul says, these folks, my kinsmen according to the flesh, they were Israelites, they were descendants of the great patriarch Jacob. That's one of the reasons he grieves over the fact that most of them don't recognize the Savior that that Jacob loved. Imperfectly, but truly loved and served and believed in. He also goes on, he says another, gives another reason, uh, or points to another aspect of the centrality of the, the Israelites' role in God's plan of redemption. He says they were, they had the adoption as sons they, that adoption as sons belonged to the uh, the biological descendants of Jacob. They were God's children, covenantally speaking. His sons. That included women, too. Sons is generic there. It's not gender specific. But they were God's children. And now, yes, it is true they were sons. They were less... Their sonship in the Old Testament, was less liberated, I'll put it that way, than new, that which we New Testament believers enjoy. Paul makes that point over in Galatians chapter 4, verse 5. But their sonship was nonetheless a genuine and a blessed sonship, even though it looked somewhat different than ours. It was still sonship. And so he ponders that fact and then notices, and yet so many of them don't believe and reject the the mediator that God, Yahweh, provided. He says the glory was theirs too. He says that in verse 4. The glory was theirs. Well, this is undoubtedly referring to the visible manifestation of God's um, uh, holiness and uh, and blessedness. It's, It's often referred to as the Shekinah glory. Things tended to glow when God, uh, when God took on some visible form, whether it be a pillar or, or a bush or a smoking pot or whatever. Uh, it glowed. And even, even the angel of the Lord. And so the Shekinah glory of God is what's being referenced here, that visible manifestation of God's holiness, his majesty, his power, and so on. And it was a glory, a visible uh, indicator of God's presence that the people of Israel alone uniquely had seen. 
on numerous occasions throughout uh, their history as a nation. For example, at Sinai, that's the greatest uh, and the most obvious example, when they saw and were terrified the glory of God on the mountain, and they were scared. But they saw that Shekinah glory. When uh, the Spirit, uh, when God came and hovered over the tabernacle in the wilderness uh, on occasion, during the 40 years of wandering, they saw it, the Shekinah glory of God in the, in the uh, pillar of fire and the, and the glowing cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. And then, of course, when, the, when God uh, uh, visibly filled Solomon's temple uh, in Jerusalem at the time of the dedication, they saw the glory, a glimpse of the glory of God. That was theirs, Paul says. And nobody else. Then he speaks of the covenants. He said the covenants, it was theirs. What's he referring to here? He is, uh, he is referring undoubtedly to the various Old Testament administrations of that one covenant of grace that was initially proclaimed in the garden after the fall when God was cursing the serpent. And those various administrations include that uh, proclamation, that first proclamation of the gospel in the garden, uh, followed by the Noahic covenant, the one that was made not with all of creation, but with Noah and those that were in the ark. There were two covenants that were made with Noah. Um, it includes the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. And all those covenants or covenant administrations belong to the Jewish people, the descendants of Jacob. And they were a part. And they were recipients of and parties, at least externally, legally, to these covenants especially to the latter ones, Mosaic and the Davidic. Paul goes on, he says, and guess what else? God had also given them his law. He gave the law to them. In, now, there's a sense in which God has given the law to all of mankind through the law written on their hearts. We all have that, all humanity. But God had given them the law inscripturated with his... He doesn't have a finger, by the way. But that he had, he had written on the stone and he gave it to them in black and white, as we say. No other people group were present at Mount Sinai. Only Jews. Only Jews saw those tablets. Only Jews had them, those tablets placed in that ark over which God, God dwelt in a unique way, like, unlike he dwelled, had dwelt anywhere else on earth. He was dwelling there in a unique way, localized way. And it was over those tablets that he himself had written on. And God had entrusted that law to those people of old, those descendants of Jacob, that they might both, that it might be preserved, and yes, that it might be proclaimed by them. To the nations. They didn't do a very good job of it, by the way. But God gave the law, his law to them. And then he mentions the fact that the temple 
service. The service in the temple belonged to the Jewish people as well. The temple of God, again, was uh, where, uh, was God's special localized dwelling place on earth during the Old Testament era, uh, post-Sinai. Uh, and that dwelling place was located in Israel. Not in Greece, not in Italy, not in China, not in Persia, but in Israel. Surrounded by Israelites. And it was to the Jews that God had given the responsibility and the privilege of directing and preserving God's worship in his temple. Nobody else had that privilege but the Jews alone through the Levitical priesthood and the Aaronic high priesthood. Paul goes on and he points to the promises. He speaks to the promises. He says that those were theirs as well. He's probably here speaking when he speaks to the promises as distinct from the covenants. He's probably speaking about the promises that God made through the Old Testament prophets regarding the person and work of the then yet coming future Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. They had all those promises given to them. The Jews knew far more about God's plan to send a mediator to earth than any other people group. They knew, if anybody knew, if they just paid attention to what God had said to them through the prophets. And then Paul points to the fact, he says, the fathers belong to them too. Undoubtedly here he's thinking about the spiritual fathers of the Old Testament, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and perhaps also thinking about Moses and Samuel and David and so on. But certainly Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in particular. All of whom, all those patriarchs, were looking forward to and trusting in the Messiah's coming. It hadn't happened in their day, but they were hoping in that Messiah and their descendants, most of them, in Paul's day, were not. And yet their forefathers were. The fathers belonged to them. And then above all, Paul says, Jesus was an Israelite through his mother, Mary. Jesus was an Israelite. Jewish blood coursed through his veins. And it was Jewish blood that he shed on the cross. And in spite of all these glorious privileges and blessings, and yes, responsibilities as well, but in spite of all these things that God had done with them and for them and among them, The majority of them in Paul's day had no desire to submit to the God of their forefathers by trusting in the covenant mediator that he sent to reconcile sinners to himself. And this fact greatly grieved, hurt the Apostle Paul because he's like my family. And they're all... So, so many of them are walking in darkness and are going to die a horrific, face a horrific eternity unless God does something new. 
And this grief that Paul had over what appeared to be the coming fate, uh, final destiny of his many of his kinsmen according to the flesh, that grief Jesus himself shared. Think of what Jesus said in Matthew 23. Remember his words as he is looking over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted, I wanted, Jesus, I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. There's grief in those words of our Savior. Like unto the grief that Paul was experiencing when he wrote the words in Romans 9. Well, what do we, what do we take away from this grief the, uh, and the, the reasons because of the great privileges and, uh, and blessings that the Israelites enjoyed? What, what can we take away from that? A couple of things, I think. First of all, being a member of the covenant community, the visible church, the external, those who are externally in relationship with God, at least externally, um, and hopefully, you know, the vast majority in a good church are also internally in covenant with the Lord. But being a member of the covenant community and having all the privileges associated with being a member of that community, this community, does not guarantee that the person in that community, any person in that community, is a believer in the saving way in Jesus. Or that that person will become a believer before they take their last breath. So just because you're here in this church, and a member of this church as a covenant child or as an adult, doesn't in any way guarantee that you're going to heaven. I hope everybody understands that. This text makes that point quite clear as an implication of it. By the way, you children, you children, I want your attention. You children in the back, listen to this. This is very important. You children, one of the dangers of growing up in church, in a good church where the Bible is preached, is that you can get Um, you can lose interest in what's being said because you've heard it so much. There's an expression that adults use, familiarity breeds contempt. If you become too accustomed to hearing certain things or seeing certain things, you become... Um, uh, you don't want to hear it anymore. Or you go, eh, I've heard all that. And you stop listening. And that's how children who grow up in church end up going to hell. Is they become, they say, I've heard all that before. And they don't allow it to continue to affect their heart. And they become hard-hearted. And then when they leave the church, when they leave the house, they stop going to church. They stop, they never truly trusted in Jesus and they never return to the church and never trust Christ and end up dying without forgiveness from God. Don't be one of those children. Don't. For your own sake. 
Don't be one of those children. And for those of, I don't think there are any here today, but those who go casually to church, show up now and then, think that because they show up at church and sit through the thing and throw a few bucks in the collection plate that somehow, it's okay, it's good. God and I are good. No, you're not. You're not a Christian if you do that. Just because you have some connection to a church, if you are not committed to Christ and serving with Christ with his other people in a local expression of the church, be it this congregation or some other congregation that, that has the gospel, that believes the gospel and preaches the gospel, if you're not committed to a church, you don't, you don't go to heaven because we're members of a church. That doesn't play any part in getting us to heaven. But if we're heaven-bound, we're going to be committed to a church. The Westminster Confession, quoting, uh, paraphrasing St. Cyprian, or Cyprian, uh, a 4th century uh, minister, said, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation outside of the visible church. That doesn't mean going to church gets you into heaven or plays any part in getting you to heaven. But if you're going to heaven, you will desire and seek out and become a member of a believing community and serve God and worship God in that community and be committed to that community. So don't think, and you tell those that you hear that have friends that think that way, you got to tell them. No, you can't be confident that you're a Christian if you're just sitting home watching Charles Stanley on the television or some other preacher who may be a good preacher and that somehow that's okay and that's what Christians can do and that's not a problem. That's a big problem. Feel free to tell them that. In fact, I would urge you to tell them that. All right. We've looked at the reasons why Paul, uh, really one overarching reason, and that is because they had all the privileges and, and the people of Paul's day were sitting on the shoulders of all those men, patriarchs, and had all those privileges themselves, were brought up in the church of, of the Old Testament, and then most of them just were like, eh, I don't need that Jesus. I'm good enough where I'm at. That's the reason why he grieved over the unbelief of most of the Israelites of his day. But the text also not only talks about the reasons, it also speaks of the intensity of Paul's grief. In verses 1 through 3. Paul starts out by solemnly certifying to his readers to the Romans, Christians, that he was writing to, the truthfulness of what he's about to say. And so he says there in verse 1, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. It's like, you kind of wonder when you read that, at least I have earlier in my Christian life, going, what, 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 why is he using this kind of over-the-top kind of language? I don't, I don't get it. Well, here's why. He says that because... He feels the need to preface what he is about to say in the coming verses. He feels the need to preface that with a strong oath, which is what's found there. That's an oath in verse 1. 
And he feels the need to to make that oath and say, I swear to you what I'm about to say, I mean. Because he wants them to to know that, that the highly critical, and what's coming is highly critical, the highly critical remarks that he's about to make about the Jewish nation and the Jewish people, uh, and also that he's already made, by the way, back in chapter 2 of this epistle, those highly critical remarks that he has made and will make, he's like, don't misconstrue what I'm saying reader. It would be easy for Paul's readers to conclude from what he said back in chapter 2 about what a real Jew is. It's not one who's one outwardly, but it's one who's one inwardly. He just dismissed biologic, uh, biology right there and uh, a, 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 a biological descent. He just dismissed it utterly there in, back in chapter 2. makes no difference if you're circumcised, if you've gone to synagogue and temple all your life. He said, so it would have been easy for the reader to conclude from those denunciations by Paul of the Jews and uh, so on that, that he had no great concern for their spiritual well-being. Well, since God is angry at, at them because they rejected his Messiah, Paul was too. He didn't let them all go to hell. That was not Paul's heart. Nothing could be further from the truth than that. And Paul wanted to make sure his readers understood, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not wishing this is, I don't glee, I'm not gleeful that these, um, that these haters of God, and that's what they were, because they hated his Messiah, who was Jesus of Nazareth, and majority of them probably reject, had rejected him. Just because they hate God doesn't mean I want them to perish. I care. And he apparently felt that the best way to convince his readers of that great burden that he had, that overwhelming passion, compassion, and pity that he had for his people, according to the flesh, his kinsmen, was to say so in the clearest and most emphatic way, which is what verses 1 through 3 is doing. And so he explains to them the intensity of his grief over the spiritual condition of his brethren uh, in the a Jewish world. He says, I have great and unceasing grief in my heart. It's not, it wasn't mild sadness that Paul felt over his kinsman predic- his kinsman's predicament. To describe even the emotional distress that he was feeling over their situation as considerable, that too would be inappropriate. It wasn't considerable uh, distress that Paul had when he thought about thousands and perhaps hundreds of thousands and maybe even more of, of Jews perishing and going to hell in, of his day. No, what Paul felt when he contemplated the divine condemnation to which his unbelieving countrymen were subject, what he felt was sheer, unadulterated agony in his soul. His heart was breaking over their lost condition. Especially in light of the blessings that they had handed to them on a silver platter, in effect, by God. And his grief was so great that he says in verse 3, and this is is just, it's kind of wild what Paul says here, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. 
my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's speaking here hypothetically. Okay, What he says he could wish for cannot happen, could not have happened. But he's saying, if, hypothetically, if by being separated from Christ and damned to hell for eternity, if I could, by doing so, could bring about the salvation of my Jewish brethren, I would willingly pay such a price to see them freed from their spiritual bondage and made right with God. Their covenant God, who has made a covenant with them. And they are covenant breakers. If I could make them covenant keepers by causing them to trust in Christ by my own damnation, I would do it. You think about that. He knew, well, none of us really know entirely how horrific hell is. But if anybody knew well, as well as you can, this side of heaven, what hell was going to be like, he did. And yet he said, I take it. For them, for my family, according to the flesh. What are the implications of this? Well, first of all, obviously, it reveals the magnitude of God's love. Uh, Not God's, Paul's love for his lost countrymen. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life his friends. Paul was willing to do that. He couldn't arrange it. It wasn't God's will. But if he could, he would have done that. That's how great his love was for his people, uh, his countrymen. And it also reveals what Paul said, reveals the enormity of his burden for them. For their lost condition. For their spiritual uh, deadness and for their um, for their rebellion against the God of their forefathers and the Messiah that he and Savior that he provided so how does this uh, apply to us well I think you know where I'm going with this Many of you. Paul was burdened in an extraordinary way. And I think what the Spirit, one of the reasons this text is in here is because he's saying, how about you? Are you like Paul? Are you burdened for your family? doesn't know Christ? Are you burdened? Does your heart break over the thought of your non-Christian loved ones going to hell for eternity? And I think the answer is, for most of us who have unbelieving loved ones, the answer is yes. Our hearts do break. But what about, like Paul, he went beyond his immediate family. He went to his National, we'll call it that, family. And he cared about all of Israel, all the Jews. He grieved over all of those who were not walking with Christ. And I think the application is we too need to be grieving over 
people to whom we may not have close relationship. Remember, we're all related, ultimately. We're all one family from Adam and Eve. So we're all, in one sense, an extended family. Do you come even remotely close to sharing the burden that Paul had for the spiritual well-being of his greater family? I don't. I certainly don't. My guess is some of you are like me. This text is saying to us, you need to strive to have that kind of a burden for people that are lost and going to hell around you, that you interact with every day or every week, that you see at the grocery store, at the hair salon, down at the hardware store, across the fence in your yard, delivering mail. We need to be burdened for these people. We were once them. And God was merciful to us. Our hearts need to break over these people. You know, we were talking about sexually sexual deviancy in the, in the General Assembly. We need to break, our hearts need to break over those people. We need to not just go, oh, they're a bunch of perverts. I'm, I don't care what happens to them. That's evil to say that. It's evil to think that. We need to have compassion. We need to want to see them made whole. Not just spiritually, but all, obviously with a spiritual transformation will, will be a transformation of their, their behavior. We need to care about people like that. We need to be, be burdened and pray for people like that on a regular basis. We need to earnestly be beseeching God for something, again, approaching this kind of a burden and uh, that would move us to action. It would move us not just to pray, but actually to break through the... the uh, um, comfort barriers that we don't want to break through and where we start getting uncomfortable. I don't know quite what to say to this person. Okay. Yeah, that's not pleasant. But get over it. The person's heading is on the road to hell. Get over it. Your comfort problems. Now, of course, the Lord doesn't... I'm saying that. That's... We, we do, though. We need to get over it. We need to get over ourselves and our fears. Because this is, this, is, this is life and death, eternal life and death, when we, when we are interacting with these people. And to just be pleasant with them and let them skip merrily along into perdition is just not right for us to have that kind of an attitude or to not work hard to do what we can to help somebody see they need Jesus by talking with them. We need to speak up. We need to speak up to God about them, and we need to speak up to them. And only God can give us the courage that we need, and it's, it's I've been doing, you know, I'm a minister, so in some ways it's easier for me, but it's still not easy for me. I need God's grace to overcome my insecurities and my fears too, and I've many times I've not shared my faith when I should have and had the opportunity.
But we gotta, we gotta get past ourselves. And this passage calls us to do just that. To be burdened enough to, to pray, to witness, to live in, in ways that are extraordinary that cause people to go, wow, what's, these people are different. That they might be drawn to the Savior that we worship. If you're here today and you are not trusting in Jesus Christ who is 100% God and 100% man and the only way to get into heaven, be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God. If you're not trusting in that Jesus, you're one of these people who's on the road to hell. Now you can get off that road. Only by God's grace can you get off that road. But, but if you want to get off that road by fleeing to Jesus, then God wants you and his will that you get off that road. So you can't use the, I don't know if I'm elect or not, as an excuse not to come to Christ. If you want to be saved, and if you want and understand that Jesus alone can save you, and that He, uh, you must receive him as Savior and Lord of your life, and you're willing to do that, that means God has already worked in your heart and brought you to that point and is calling you to receive Christ. And if you do so by faith, trusting in him and him alone, clinging to him alone, then you are elect. That's how you know you're elect. You believe. You'll, you'll receive Christ. Trust Christ as your Savior and Lord. So if you're here today and you've not done that, do that, please. Because the hell that Paul wished he himself could receive in the place of his kinsmen is a real place. And it's horrible. For eternity. And you'll be there unless you're covered in the blood of Christ by faith. Come to Christ now. Don't wait another day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. It's sobering, Lord. It's scary. But it's good to hear. It reminds us, Lord, of um, things that we need to, ways we need to be and things we need to do. Lord, would you please forgive us for those of us who are guilty of this? Would you please forgive us for those times when we have not really cared much about the people we're interacting with on a daily or weekly or monthly basis? who we know or suspect are not Christians. Please forgive us for our callousness. Please forgive us for those times when we have not spoken up, when we were being prodded in our consciences to speak up, but chose not to because we were scared to be embarrassed, to say something that might cause awkwardness in a relationship. And would you please help us, Lord, to get past ourselves and to see the needs out there with more eyes more like yours. 
from his, to see them from a heavenly perspective. And would you please give us what only you can give us, and that is deep-seated, a deep-seated burden for their, for their spiritual recovery in Christ. Would you please give us opportunities to tell people about our beloved Savior, who can be theirs if they will flee to him in faith. And if there's anybody here today in that condition who is unconverted, man, woman, or child, please have mercy. Open the eyes of the blind that they might see and lay hold of Jesus. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.